Is this better? All right. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to the book of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we'll pick up with verse 21. We're going to read 21 through 24. We're not going to cover all of those today, but we'll at least read them together. So Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we'll stop there. This morning we have a lot to do in here. I'm going to introduce to you a a list of important themes that Paul is going to get to in these next few verses. I'm going to teach a little bit about church history so that we might better understand one of the key doctrines of the Christian faith. And then we'll look at verse 21 together uh, and try to look at some of the meanings in there. So let's start with some of these important themes. For those of you who take notes, I've listed these on the back of your bulletin for you. We'll be covering these in the weeks to come. We'll just look at the first one today. Um, But in these next set of verses, really verses 21 through 31, we're going to be dealing with these themes that are not just the heart of Paul's writings, but the heart of the gospel, the heart of the Word of God entirely. And so I just want you to know that in all of life and in all of history, there is nothing more important than these teachings. That list on the back of your bulletin. And here's a simple outline of those for you. First, God has provided a righteousness of His own for men and women, a righteousness we do not possess ourselves. This is the heart, as I said, of the the theme of the Word of God. Although it's new in its fulfillment, it's nevertheless, it's been fully prophesied in the Old Testament. The second truth, this righteousness is by grace. We don't deserve it. In fact, we are incapable of deserving it. The third truth is that it is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in dying for His people, redeeming them from their sin, that has made this grace on God's part possible. This is the historic event. This is why it says now in verse 21. This is the now. This is what happened that separates what used to be from what is currently. It is the reason there is a Christian gospel. Fourth, this righteousness that God has graciously provided becomes ours through simple faith. And then the last one, believing and trusting God in regard to the work of Jesus is the only way anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, can be saved. So you see that those truths build on one another. And what's interesting, I say this every time I introduce lots of material like this, that we'll get to them when we get to them. I was talking to Uriah in the office. She said the one thing she learned from the women's study on the book of Romans is that Paul returns to these themes over and over again throughout the book. So he might introduce it in this verse, but then two chapters later he'll explain it. And a few chapters after that he might apply it. 
So we will come to all these in our study. But what I want to show you this morning, you can see the importance of the verses we read by noticing that they are nearly an exact repetition of what Paul has already said in the opening verses of the book. Romans chapter 1, let's consider the first five verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holy. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ is the Savior. All right, let's try this one. Verse 4, And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The teachings of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31 are in there. It is the same gospel. Later in chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So allow me to repeat myself. There is nothing in all of life or history that is more important than these teachings. The issues of eternity hang on these truths. And we must be faithful to them, regardless of any resistance that we may encounter. So before we get into the text, I think we should define some terms. And this may take the bulk of our time this morning, but I think it's important because these are core truths of the Christian faith that we need to know what they are. We need to be able to define them. and We need to be able to live according to them. So the first thing I want to introduce to you is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. This is the doctrine that provoked the most serious controversy in all of church history. The Christian church. It resulted in the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Which focused on the material cause of justification. This doctrine of justification. It involved a simple question. How can an unjust person ever hope to stand before the just judgment of God? How can an unjust person ever hope to stand before a just God and His judgment? In other words, how, how are we saved? As I've mentioned, this is a matter of eternal consideration. This was a controversy that people gave their lives for. And yet today, many people will have trouble defining any of the terms in that statement, whether it be faith or whether it be justification. Last week, this was one of the words that we put up on the screen as a list of words that we probably should know the meaning of. 
So let's look into this. Martin Luther insisted that justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. If the church doesn't get this right, it ceases to be an authentic church. If the church denies or obscures this doctrine of justification by faith alone, it is no longer a Christian body. To this feeling by Luther, John Calvin added that this doctrine of justification is the hinge on which everything else turns. How about another metaphor? J.I. Packer said that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the atlas that carries the whole of the Christian faith on its shoulders. If justification by faith alone stumbles, the whole Christian faith comes crashing to the ground. So you get the idea. We need to be clear as to what the word justification means, what this doctrine is all about. We're going to encounter it over and over in Romans moving forward. First, let me tell you what justification does not mean. When we are justified in the sight of God, it is not just an act of divine pardon. In justification, God does not just merely forgive us. You know, when a governor or a president exercises their right to pardon a criminal, they more or less forgive that criminal of what they've done, right? And they release them, sets him free. So that person goes free. But my question is, what happens next? Do they retain their innocence? You see, the problem is if we, like, if we think that justification is only about forgiveness, then all it does for us is return us to the state that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. You're now forgiven. Your slate is clean. But what now? Can you withstand the temptation that will come your way? Adam and Eve could not. So to merely say that it is forgiveness leaves off a great deal of what is important to us. Certainly justification involves forgiveness, but let's don't confuse justification with simply being an act of pardon. Justification not only includes the forgiveness of sins, but it also includes what we call the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That is the subject of today's passage, verse 21. The imputation of Christ's righteousness. In justification, God makes a legal declaration. What we call a forensic declaration. It is a judicial type announcement. God makes a declaration about our status before he passes judgment upon us. So again, it's not just pardon. Here's a short definition, and that is justification is an act whereby God declares a person to be just. You could say, or righteous. God declares a per person to be just or righteous. It is that act by which God judicially declares that a person is righteous in his sight. The opposite would be a declaration of condemnation, whereby he would declare that you are guilty 
in his sight. Here's a more complete definition. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and, as, and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. Okay, while that's on the screen, for those of you writing it down, let's go back to the great controversy. In the 16th century, both the Roman Catholics and the Protestants both believed that justification is something that God does. And they both believed that it was a judicial declaration. They also both agreed that it doesn't happen until a person is declared just or righteous by God. So the issue then both then and now, is this, on what grounds does God make this declaration? It's the question we asked earlier. Why would God do that? Why would God look at us when we're dead in our trespasses and sin and say, you are a just person? When manifestly, we are not just people. You see, the good news of the gospel is that God pronounces people just, astonishingly enough, while they are still sinners. This was the debate with Rome. The Roman Catholic Church defined their doctrine on justification in the mid-16th century, 1545 to 1563, the Council of Trent. And justification was covered in 1547 in the 6th session. That's where they talked about what justification is. So the Roman Catholic Church understood it to be something that changes us internally. They believe justification changed a person internally and made us more holy. I mean, Rome agrees that we cannot be justified without grace. And that you'll never become justified without faith. And you'll never become justified without the assistance of Jesus Christ. So we need faith, we need grace, and we need Jesus. So we agree with them up till this point. But what they say is that we need the righteousness of Christ infused or poured into us poured into our soul, which is different from imputed. Imputed means attributed to, ascribed to. That's imputed. Infused, you you know, means to pour into. So they believe the righteousness of Christ is poured into us, but you must cooperate with that grace to such a degree that you will become, in fact, righteous. In other words, God puts into you a righteousness that changes you internally, including your moral character. So, let's let's move on. We'll go slowly. Our measure of justification, according to them, is the measure of righteousness that is poured into us. The result of which causes people like you and me do not know whether we're in a state of grace to use their language or not. 
Here's what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says. The degree of justifying grace is not identical in all of the just. Grace can be increased by good works. And I hope you can see the logical consequences that this kind of a doctrine leads to. And that is that our eternal life with God is based not on his grace alone, but partially at least on our own good works. To continue in the catechism of the Catholic Church, for the justified, eternal life is both a gift of grace promised by God and a reward for his own good works and merits. Salutary works, which means favorable or wholesome, something like that, producing a good effect. Salutary works are at the same time gifts of God and meritorious acts of men. So I share this with you not to cause any ill will toward our Catholic friends, but to give you the history from which this doctrine of justification by faith alone became prominent. The reason this became an issue, I think, is due in part to a very unfortunate period in the, the life of the church. In the early centuries, the Greek Bible sort of fell out of favor. People began reading from Latin Bible, and many church leaders read the Latin Bible exclusively. As you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. And any scholar who wants to get to the best possible rendering of the truth will go to the original language and the oldest possible manuscript. But Latin became the dominant language and many scholars read the Latin Bible and not the English Bible. As a result, they borrowed the Latin word for justification, which is justificare. That verb fiacare means to make or to shape, or to do. Justus means righteousness or justice. So justificare literally means to make righteous or to make just. Now, we believe that happens in the life of a Christian, but we call it sanctification, not justification. So how does this relate to today's text? Well, in verse 24, we read, and are justified, there's our word, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what Greek word is represented by that word justified? I think we need to know that. Well, the Greek word we find there is dikaio. And that word does not mean to make righteous, but rather to declare righteous. We even see it used of God in Luke chapter 7, verse 29 it says, and all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. That's from the King James Version. The English Standard Version uses the same idea, but just gives you the definition of the word. And it says, declared God just. That's what justified means, to declare just, not to make just. So in the Roman Catholic view, God will never pronounce a person just or righteous until, by help of God's grace and of Jesus, that person actually becomes righteous. The justification has made him righteous. So I ask, if God were to judge you today, 
Would he find sin in your life? Could he possibly declare you just if the basis for that is you actually being just? You remember Paul said in Romans chapter 3 verse 20, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. And that is precisely why the grounds for our justification cannot be found within us. Luther called it a justia alienum, a, a justice from outside, an alien justice. He referred to it extranos, outside of us, extra, apart from us. In simplest terms, it means that the only righteousness sufficient for us to stand before the judgment of God is the righteousness of Christ. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is sort of theological shorthand for this thinking, and that is the affirmation that justification is by Christ alone, by his righteousness, which is received by faith. So when Paul talks about being justified in these verses, he's not just talking about pardon. And he's not talking about God seeing something within you that's worthy of heaven. He's talking about something else altogether. Now I know we've talked a lot about Martin Luther. I want to share one more saying that he was known for. In the 16th century, a little saying kind of went around that was, Simul justus et peccator. And that's Latin. Simul is the root from which we get words like simultaneously. It means at the same time. Right? In Eustace, we've already defined as righteous or just. So it means at the same time, just or righteous. The word et, if you took Latin in high school, you know, means and. You remember Roman uh, Julius Caesar, et tu, brute, you, and you. So et means and. And peccator is the word for sinner. If someone has no sin, we call them impeccable. And we have a word, peccadillo, which means small, little sins. So you have simul justus et peccator. At the same time, just or righteous and a sinner. How can this be? While we are sinners, we're also righteous in God's sight. By virtue of this legal transfer that God has made, assigning us the righteousness of his son, Jesus. Imputation. And he does that for us when we put our trust in Christ. That legal transfer, now God sees the righteousness of Christ. We are declared to be in possession of that. We are righteous. We are just. That's good news because that means that we can be declared just before God even while we are sinners. That's the heart of the gospel. If we have to wait to become perfectly righteous before we're acceptable to God, when exactly is that going to happen? And this is the point that Paul is beginning to make in this section. In verse 21, he talks about this righteousness is now revealed, it's now made manifest apart from the law. So when we get to Romans 4, we're going to see that this doctrine of justification by faith is not new. 
It's not a novelty. It's not a new doctrine that was announced by Jesus or even made up by Paul. This doctrine of the gospel is rooted in the entire testimony of the Old Testament. The whole point of the law is to drive us to this Jesus and the work that he did for us because he alone possesses the righteousness that we do not have. Last week we looked at prophets and psalmists and even the law to to see how all of it pointed forward to Jesus. And in chapter 4 we're going to learn That today, on this side of the cross, we are justified just like the people in the Old Testament were on the other side of the cross. Again, we have faith in what Christ did for us in the past while they had faith for the promise of a Messiah to come. So there's your list of doctrines we're going to look at and the overarching big core belief. Now let's look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to him. This speaks to that first truth on the back of your bulletin, the first one we talked about, and that is that God has provided a righteousness of his own for men and women. So this righteousness is both of God and from God, A lot of biblical translators wrestled with the Greek word in there. And does it mean to or does it mean from or does it mean of God or does it mean from God? And it actually, I think we can confidently say, includes both. It's been disclosed in the person and work of Christ. Before that, we really didn't have a way of measuring what this righteousness of God would look like. But now we do. We see it in our Savior It is also from God. He makes it available to us. So to summarize that, righteousness is to be seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his righteousness, but it is also his own. We need it. It is available to us from him. The thing is, apart from this righteousness of Jesus Christ, we're left with really an inadequate idea of what the holy God requires. And so we begin to compare ourselves to each other. That's what Paul did. Prior to his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had compared himself with other people, even the most moral of people that he could find. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh alone, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he begins to list his credentials for having confidence in the flesh. But then he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And for the first time ever, he came to see what real righteousness looks like. And so he changed his tune a little bit. Same book, Philippians, same chapter, chapter 3, just a few verses later. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That sounds a lot like what we read this morning. You can see at the same time that this righteousness is of God. He said it's not of himself, not of Paul. 
It's revealed in Christ. And it was a righteousness that comes from God. He said that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. This is the basis, friends, for all redeemed people to ascribe all their praise and thanks to God. Okay, so in this verse, I think we ought to talk about the law just for a moment. We introduced the idea a week or two ago, but let's see what this verse says about the law. It says that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this is important to us because it tells us once again where where this righteousness cannot come from. The righteousness of God comes apart from the law. It doesn't come to us through the law. Of course, we've mentioned this before. It doesn't mean that the law is without value. In fact, this verse gives the law value when it says that the law testified to this righteousness. So that's value in and of itself. Last week, we looked at some of the texts that illustrate how the law and the prophets testified to this righteousness of Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 3, we see Paul returning to this idea of the law. We'll get to that soon. It says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So the law then clearly has value. I've got to remember I can't walk away from this mic. So the law clearly has value, not just during the Old Testament period, but now to us as New Testament Christians. So when we talk about the law, there's really two functions that we acknowledge. The first is to restrain evil. The law is intended to restrain evil, just like our secular laws do today. Most people observe the laws. At least most people observe some of the laws. It does restrain evil. You can imagine what the society would be like with no laws at all. So we try to obey them. It's interesting, though. I have a book in my Amazon wish list. I haven't bought it, but I think I might. It's called Three Felonies a Day. I don't know if you've ever heard of this book. It's, I don't know the author. His name is Harvey Silverglate. The premise of the book is a professional can get up, drink his coffee, go to work, have a productive day, return home and go to bed and not realize that in the course of his day, he's probably violated several federal laws. The reason, of course, is that our system of laws has become bloated. It's too numerous for us to even keep up with. And some of the laws are vague and hard to to know if you're guilty or not. Of course, this is an illustration of the weakness or the shortcoming of our legal system, but one of the legitimate functions of a law in a well-functioning system is to restrain evil, and I think you could say God's law does that. The second function of the law is to reveal man's sin and point him to the need for Christ. A few weeks ago, I gave the example of a mirror, and that's what the law is. You look into the law, and it reveals just how far you've fallen short of what God expects. And these are important functions, but the one thing that it cannot do and was never meant to do is it cannot save you. You cannot be saved by observing the law. This is why Paul said this righteousness of God is apart from the law. 
And that's why this is such good news for us. Even though for the unsaved, it's hard to understand or accept this principle. It just sounds a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? God gave you the law, but now he's going to save you in spite of your disobedience to the law. It's difficult for the unregenerate to understand. But Paul later says in chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He acknowledges that the law is good for us. If we could be saved by the law of God, it would save us. But we can't. We can't keep it. It can't save. If it's of any benefit to us, it has to be enabling us to see our inability to satisfy God's standards. At least by our own efforts and turn to Christ. The law. That's why Paul says in Romans 3.22 that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all, belie- uh, for all who believe, for there is no distinction. This righteousness doesn't come through the law, comes apart from the law. It comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. We'll get to that next week in greater detail. So when we say the law, you could look at that several ways. Paul could, and I think is saying, especially to his Jewish audience who might be reading this letter, that the righteousness of God comes apart from the law, that is, apart from the law that God gave to Israel. The law that we have written down in the Old Testament as law. John Murray said that he means that in justification there is no contribution, preparatory, accessory, or subsidiary that is given by the works of the law. You don't need it for this. It's the righteousness of Christ given apart from that law. But law can mean other things. You could say that it means the divine standards of God in general. But there's a third way we can look at it, especially for us that are not Jewish. It also embraces all human effort to attain righteousness. And this means that the fundamental principle of this verse and you could even say the whole Bible, is that God's righteousness is to be received apart from any human doing whatsoever. You're saved through faith, not of yourselves so that nobody can boast. I think this is the meaning of law in the context that we're in today. Not just the law given to Israel and not just your idea of the general standards by which God holds us in our behavior but rather any human effort to attain righteousness and what when you think about it this truth is what distinguishes Christianity from pretty much every other religion all religions have their distinguishing points of course some call God or the supreme being by different names all have a, a path or one or another to this God. Some emphasize one path, some another. Some are mystical, some are very ritualistic. But all of them, except Christianity, suppose that there is something that human beings can do for the deity to convince him to save them. They teach a human way to achieve eternity, a man-made ladder to heaven. 
Only Christianity humbles a man by insisting that there is nothing at all we can do to work out our own salvation. We're at the mercy of God. Of course, once we are saved, we are then expected to do things, right? Because Jesus calls us to discipleship, so there are a lot of things we do. But we're not saved by doing those things. God holds out this righteousness of Jesus Christ to show us the impossibility of living according to the standard of human effort. All these can bring to us, all of your human striving, all it can do for you is to bring you to judgment. Romans chapter 4, the first part of verse 15 says, for that the law brings wrath. In Galatians chapter 3, it says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. So I think in this context of thinking here in a room largely filled with believers, I think it's important for us to see if we're really trusting in what Jesus has done or whether we're trusting in what we suppose we can do. A few weeks ago, I introduced to you the pastor of the church in Philadelphia named Donald Barnhouse. He writes this, Look into your own heart and see whether you are trusting, even in a small fraction, in something that you are doing for yourself or that you are doing for God, instead of finding in your heart that you have ceased from your works as God did from his, and that you are resting on the work that was accomplished on the cross of Calvary. This is the secret of reality, righteousness apart from the law, righteousness apart from human doing. Christianity is the faith that believes God's word about the work that is fully done, completely done, righteousness without law, Righteousness apart from human character. Righteousness without even a consideration of the nature of the being that is made righteous. Righteousness that comes from God upon an ungodly man. Righteousness that will save a thief on the cross. Righteousness that is prepared for you. Righteousness that you must choose by abandoning any hope of salvation from anything that is in yourself. And underline this, it is the only righteousness that can produce practical righteousness in you. So this righteousness is apart from the law. There's one other characteristic I want to get to. And that is that it is built on revelation. This righteousness of God is built on revelation. The last part of verse 21 says that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It is divinely revealed. So this statement, I think, is probably aimed at the Jewish readers because their whole religion centered on the law and the prophets. It would be to us what we would call the Old Testament in its entirety. And what Paul is saying is that this is not some new kind of righteousness, but it's about the righteousness that was spoken of throughout the Jewish scriptures. You see, most Jewish people in Paul's day had a great reverence for their scriptures. But they failed to realize that although it was divinely revealed, 
The scriptures in themselves had no power to save. Here's the way Jesus taught it. In John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So in other words, the law and the prophets didn't show men how to achieve some kind of righteousness, but they pointed forward to the righteousness of a coming Messiah. God would provide the righteousness that God demands of men. So the first part of the book of Romans focused on the human problem, and we spent weeks on that. Then we get to the phrase, but now, and it introduces the divine solution to that human problem. God's perfect, holy, divine righteousness has been made manifest in the appearing of Jesus Christ. And while the event is new, it occurred in history, when Paul wrote this, recently in history. The plan of salvation is not new, it was testified to throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the word translated manifested there, it means that his knowledge was disclosed to people. This knowledge about God's righteousness was disclosed to people. It was revealed or made clear. And it's made clear whether people accept it or not. God's truth is not dependent upon human approval. But you see, for us, Saving faith doesn't just mean believing the promises of the Old Testament. Because we have seen this Jesus through his word where this righteousness is made manifest. We accept the promise by acknowledging our own inadequacy to live up to the standards of God and to receive in faith this Jesus who was the very righteousness of God. As we close this morning, I'm going to ask our musicians to return to the stage. So we've talked about some church history. This has been a hard sermon. If you think it was hard to hear, think about how it was to write. I told Dan almost every day, I don't like the way this is going. It's going to be way long and very technical. And So we talked about some church history. We talked about some principles of the faith that we need to fully understand. But I want to take you back to what's of ultimate importance this morning. In chapter 1, we learn that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God showed mankind his eternal power and divine nature. God revealed himself to mankind. And here in chapter 3, we see that God's righteousness has been made manifest apart from the law in his Son. In between... Those two revelations, you can see man's desperate need for this solution. His desperate need for the righteousness of Christ. So I guess, what is your response today? I've mentioned it before. If you're a believer in Christ, this should be a source of worship for you, of adoration and praise and thanksgiving. When you realize your condition in Romans 2, the promise of God's righteousness and seeing that fulfilled in the Gospels and realizing that you're saved not by anything of yourselves, but that it is a gift of God that you receive through faith.
If you're not a believer, this is the answer you need. Because you're on the wrong path to peace with God. You're seeking God as these other religions do by trying to do this or that to please Him. Your righteousness will not be enough for you. The righteousness of Christ is exactly what you need. And you need it now. There is no other option except Him today. Let's pray.